That's going to wrap things up for us here at the Student Activities Building. Uh, extra points. That, that was a show you just listened to. With new and then Friday night, Michigan, Michigan State, live on the air. A 7-10 to 10 in game of the week. Hopefully you tune in. It's going to be a great one. Have a good, pleasant evening. Go Blue, Ann Arbor. Navarre gives to Perry. Perry through the middle. Touchdown, Michigan! And the Wolverines have won it in overtime. Michigan wins by a score of 27 to 24, and the team storms the field to mob Chris Perry. WCBN Sports, 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor. WCBN.org. Grabs on to attempt it for the Wolverines. Holds her breath Ann Arbor as Navarre gets set. Places down, kick is up. It's long enough. It's good! It's good! Michigan wins the game! Michigan shocks Washington, and the Wolverines are victorious! Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley and uh, my partner Jim Dwyer has uh, school obligations tonight, so he'll be, uh, he'll be back with us next week. In any event, uh, it's MLK Day, so we'll talk a little bit about that in due course. A uh, quick uh, review of some of the political issues that are just passed and on the horizon. Obviously, I just want to kind of give out a brain damage award to how confusing the actual Nevada caucuses were, and I never could figure out how they even worked. Uh, the media was poor in presenting the facts on this, and uh, obviously it was, uh, you know, kind of a strange result. But that's politics, and of course, uh, this is the first time Nevada has ever uh, been in the limelight like this. I thought the media also did a poor job of highlighting the issues that are unique to Nevada. I don't remember specific questions about water uh, being asked uh, in the Nevada debate. Instead, the media was still wallowing in the narrative that they're interested in. Uh, the first woman, this is the Democratic side here, the first woman against the first African-American. And this uh, wallowing continues, I believe, uh, slightly to the de detriment of the Democratic Party. The Democrats are an interesting lot of uh, voters. Uh, obviously, their most experienced candidates for president are all out of the race. So they're uh, rolling the dice, uh, going with uh, Barack Obama, who's... Uh, you know, he's he's uh, credibly uh, presented his uh, vision of hope. His you know, book is entitled The Audacity of Hope. Uh, youthful, uh, very little uh, track record or, um, shall we say, record to dissect in which to uh, create negative campaigning. And, of course, Hillary Clinton. Uh, most Americans know who she is, what she stands for. 
I think she continues, by the way, to win the debates on points. She is good at presenting uh, the details of policy. And it seems quite uh, clear uh, from the results from Nevada that uh, the narrative going forward is not good for Barack Obama. He actually, ironically, needs Edwards to get back in the running uh, because Edwards has been effectively in the debates and as a candidate running interference for Barack Obama. We'll talk about running interference as the show continues here quickly on the political wrap-up. Um, the results from Nevada, according to the media, uh, from exit polls, say that uh, Barack Obama won the African-American vote 4-1 to one over Hillary, that uh, Hillary won the, quote, white vote 3-2, to two, and that she won the Hispanic vote 2-1 to one over Obama. Uh, those are interesting numbers um, that I think... Uh, indicate that Barack Obama will win the South Carolina primary uh, by, I'll go out on a limb. I went out on a limb last week on Romney, and that proved to be correct, and say that he's going to win South Carolina by uh, five points. There's an interesting article um, over the weekend about media coverage, and one of the fascinating things about this uh, narrative that the media has set up regarding the Democratic primary is that Hillary Clinton is getting five times the media coverage that John Edwards is, and Obama is getting four times the media coverage that John Edwards is. This, I think, explains John Edwards' problems. Also, he is sort of a man without a constituency. He needs to change his message a little bit. I think he's actually been performing better in the debates, the, the, the last several debates. But um, there's something not there, and I can't quite put my finger on it. I think last week I said the American public doesn't care about the two America narrative anymore. Uh, in fact, now uh, there is positive panic uh, going on in, uh, about the economy. Uh, ironically, today we saw the biggest uh, global stock market sell-off since 9-11. Uh, the American stock markets were closed due to MLK Day. And uh, some of the indices were down 7%, 8%. Uh, this is a massive sell-off and uh, further corroborates the um, fact that uh, we are now going into a slow stock market crash. The uh, uh, mainstream media will call this a correction. And indeed, it has been a correction of uh, at least 15% from October highs. So this, of course, is now creating uh, anxiety uh, amongst the, the mainstream media. And now we have various clamoring uh, proposals to uh, prime the pump, so to speak. The latest of these is sort of a temporary tax rebate, um, somewhere to the tune of 75 to $150 billion, uh, where the government just simply gives money away to uh, middle-class and uh, tax-paying families. This, of course, is not going to benefit the poor much. So once again, this Two Americas story that John Edwards is talking about is uh, simply not part of the uh, main concerns of the uh, mainstream media. I thought in the past week that Obama and uh, Mike Huckabee had a number of big stumbles. Huckabee's problem is that he is now... Um, turning into the dark horse, the Republican primary, and we'll talk about them for a second here, 
is quickly uh, turning into a McCain versus Romney contest with Huckabee as a dark horse and Ron Paul as a wild card. I'll point out, once again, Ron Paul has beaten Giuliani in all of the Republican contests, including, interestingly, finishing second in Nevada that got absolutely no coverage whatsoever. Uh, Ron Paul is a wild card. He's obviously not going to be the Republican nominee. But the fact that he has enough money, the fact that he's going to stay in the race for, for at least the foreseeable future, I think has an impact on Barack Obama uh, and his, uh, quote, support amongst independents. And it could actually hurt McCain a little bit down the line. Huckabee's big problem is Fred Thompson. I am mystified why Fred Thompson is still in the race, but uh, on further examination of uh, what is actually going on, if you look at recent debates, Fred Tom Thompson is sort of functioning like uh, Bill Clinton is for Hillary. He's running interference for John McCain. In the debates, he attacks Romney and Huckabee. He doesn't go after McCain, and he pretty much ignores Giuliani because Giuliani, quite frankly, has uh, become nearly irrelevant. Obviously, if Giuliani does not win Florida, which is next week, um, he's out. He's gone. Uh, he's even behind in New York State, according to new polls. So uh, Giuliani has rolled the dice, put everything into Florida, ignoring the fact, by the way, that he made more campaign appearances in New Hampshire than uh, even John McCain did. So uh, Giuliani's uh, presidential run is a complete mystery to me, and so is Fred Thompson's. I don't quite understand why he's staying in the race other than to block Southern voters from voting for Huckabee. And I would uh, suspect that uh, after Florida, Thompson may get out of the race uh, because he doesn't appear to be in the top four and uh, doesn't have money, uh, doesn't have the energy, and clearly doesn't have the voters. Huckabee will give him a couple of quick brain damage awards. A big blunder to start injecting the Confederate flag into the South Carolina primary. Uh, this is bizarre. Um, and, of course, he even had a bizarre uh, comment about sort of amending the Constitution to reflect the Ten Commandments, you know, this, this sort of pandering to the uh, Christian evangelicals uh, that don't seem to be supporting him quite in the numbers that he needs. Ironically, in South Carolina, he may have been hurt a little bit by a snowstorm. Uh, there was a, a snowstorm that went through South Carolina, and it went through that kind of real Bible belt up in the northwestern part of South Carolina, where uh, Huckabee did not do quite as well as um, one might have anticipated. So that is interesting. Then there is the bizarre Barack Obama comment about Ronald Reagan. Um, over the week, I've been reading a book called What Orwell Didn't Know, Propaganda and the New Face of American Politics. And this battle over Ronald Reagan's legacy, historical legacy, uh, is an interesting example of uh, creating history, recreating history, rewriting history, and what not. I haven't quite finished this book, but one of the most interesting essays in the book, it's basically a collection of essays, 
um, was by a, a guy named Mark Danner, who has written over the years uh, in the, uh, well, he wrote a book about the, uh, the Downing Street memos uh, that showed that the British government uh, clearly knew in the summer of 2002 that America was determined to go to war in Iraq and that, quote, intelligence was being fixed around uh, this predetermined result, this predetermined objective. And incidentally, by the way, there was an outstanding documentary uh, last week on Frontline called Cheney's Law, and I would recommend all our listeners to uh, check out this uh, documentary once again on Frontline, because it'll probably be replayed sometime uh, this summer. It's basically about how Dick Cheney uh, has a very almost uh, monarchistic uh, view of the presidency, and how David Addington, his, uh, who's now his chief of staff, who replaced Scooter Liddy, had worked in the uh, Office of Legal Counsel, and how John Yu and David Addington had sort of uh, collaborated in tandem to usurp an enormous amount of executive power that have led to all sorts of disasters, including the Iraq War. Uh, among the other disasters, by the way, is the torture policy of the Bush administration that has been... Um, really created out of thin air. Uh, John Yu and David Addington have written these Justice Department memos uh, along with the collaboration of Alberto Gonzalez, who <clears throat> interestingly is called Fredo by uh, George Bush. My recollection, by the way, is that Fredo is, a, is one of the brothers in the Godfather movie. The, the Godfather movies, and uh, these people are criminals. And it's ironic that there's a big hue and cry about the CIA memos and, you know, who might have destroyed tapes and why all these emails are missing, et cetera, et cetera. When the real crime, of course, is the entire uh, Bush presidency. And at the heart of the Bush presidency is this Dick Cheney theory of executive power that this documentary, uh, Cheney's Law, frontline documentary, I think superbly examines by... Uh, some of the journalists and writers that have examined the, the real inner workings of the Bush administration. Anyway, getting back to Mark Danner briefly, uh, in uh, his one of his more, I, I think, one of the better um, essays uh, in this uh, collection on George Orwell, what George Orwell didn't know, Propaganda in the New Face of American Politics, edited, edited by Andras Zanto. He writes, and he's quoting Orwell here, and I think this is uh, an excellent perspective. These writers, by the way, are examining a very influential essay that uh, George Orwell wrote in 1946 called Politics and the English Language. Uh, you can read this essay in any of the sort of standard George Orwell collected works because it may be his most influential essay, and of course it preceded 1984, uh, something that interestingly uh, Ronald Reagan was president in 1984, and the uh, mainstream media seems to have a better recollection of Ronald Reagan's Morning in America TV commercial more than Ronald Reagan's presidency, which included um, backing terrorists in Angola, 
El Salvador, Nicaragua, Afghanistan, uh, condoning apartheid in South Africa, bombing Libya, invading Grenada, Bitburg, Iran-Contra, in which we secretly sold weapons to Iran, uh, supporting Saddam Hussein in the Persian, uh, the Iran-Iraq war, um, ketchup as a vegetable, um, Reaganomics, in which there was uh, basically economic uh, depressions in various parts of the country throughout the Reagan presidency, a stock market collapse uh, in the late part of Reagan's presidency, and all sorts of other mischief. I mean, there were scandals. Uh, there were billions, uh, actually $1.1 trillion of money missing from the Pentagon by the end of the decade that's completely unaccounted for. Uh, there were saving the savings and loan tobacco cost taxpayers uh, 200 to $300 billion. Uh, there were massive trade deficits, massive budget deficits. And um, for Barack Obama to associate Reagan with transformative change is really bizarre. Uh, Ronald Reagan did not transform America. He transformed, you know, it was called uh, trickle-down economics, but it was actually trickle-up. Uh, there was a complete rearranging of the deck chairs, so to speak. Um, all economic classes uh, went down during the Reagan years, and uh, only the super-rich benefited from the tax cuts. I've pointed out before on this show that Social Security taxes doubled for all working Americans as well as small businesses. So even the issue of tax cuts is a bit of a myth. But getting back to Mark Danner quoting Orwell, he writes, George Orwell, from the totalitarian point of view of history is something to be created rather than learned. A totalitarian state is in effect a theocracy. And its ruling caste, in order to keep its position, has to be thought of as infallible. But since in practice nobody is infallible, it is frequently necessary to rearrange past events in order to show that this or that mistake was not made, or that this or that imaginary triumph actually happened. Well, this is part of the rearranging of the narrative regarding Reagan's presidency, we're told repeatedly, by the way, that we won the Cold War. Reagan won the Cold War. This, of course, is a myth. Uh, even former President Gerald Ford uh, pointed out that the Cold War was a long uh, struggle. As a critic of the Cold War, I, I would argue that the Cold War was actually somewhat of a myth. Uh, if you actually go back now and check uh, the actual archives, the historical archives, uh, the leaders of the United States and the Soviet Union frequently consulted over issues. They certainly were having a propaganda war in the globe, and they were certainly fighting uh, these so-called wars of national liberation, in which, um, in many cases, the Soviet Unions were supporting uh, rebels or insurgents. But in some cases, it was the other way around. The United States was supporting rebels and insurgents. Uh, and, of course, the United States was backing all sorts of totalitarian uh, military dictatorships. And Ronald Reagan was certainly maybe the most egregious of these. He did restore aid to Guatemala. Uh, he called Rios Montt, uh, who was acknowledged to be a major league war criminal in Central America, as a man getting a bum rap. Uh, he restored aid to Argentina, the military junta down there, uh, because they were uh, covertly and conveniently uh, training the Contras for us uh, in terrorist camps. 
um, and practicing torture uh, and teaching torture. Uh, we also have the School of America's uh, program down there uh, in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. All sorts of mischief, uh, terrorism, and nonsense going on. And it is this recreation of history that is uh, so troubling. Um, this, uh, the, the totalitarian state is in effect a theocracy in which the ruling caste, in order to keep its position, has to be thought of as infallible. Uh, George Bush is, is part of this uh, uh, legacy, and Dick Cheney, for sure. Um, and since no one is infallible, as Orwell writes, it is frequently necessary to rearrange past events in order to show that this or that mistake was not made or that this or that imaginary triumph actually happened. Uh, we, of course, have seen this recently, incidentally, with the uh, complete pivot that George Bush has made on the economy. Uh, over the past two months, George Bush has been uh, telling the American people, in spite of obvious empirical evidence to the contrary, that, quote, the fundamentals are sound, uh, that... Um, the American economy is working magnificently and that the tax cuts uh, that, that he instituted, a sort of a, re, a replay of the Reagan tax cuts uh, in which the, uh, the wealthy are, are given cuts on dividend uh, income and uh, capital gains taxes. They actually play, pay lower rates than uh, working people. This was pointed out in the last debate, by the way, that uh, Warren Buffett, who... Uh, has criticized these tax cuts, uh, pays a lower rate than his secretaries. Um, so yes, this is part of uh, of George Orwell and the the legacy of um, what's going on. Well, further in the essay, and I wanted to read this uh, item too, because Ron Suskind, who's written a book called The One Percent Solution that examines some of the issues regarding the Bush presidency, and actually was one of the panelists in this uh, last, uh, the, the Cheney's Law frontline uh, documentary that appeared, wrote in the October 17th edition of the 2004 New York Times uh, magazine, in which he, quote, a powerful unnamed American uh, administration official, who said the aide said, guys like me were, quote, in what we call the reality-based community, which he defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality. I nodded and murmured something about the Enlightenment principles and empiricism. He cut me off and said, quote, that's not the way, really, that's not the, way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously as you will, will act again, creating other new realities, which you too can study, and that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, and he's referring to the journalists here, will be left to just study what we do. And this is what is troubling, this uh, creation of new realities, part of our... Uh, growing and emerging uh, theocracy and totalitarian state that we live in. Of course, the totalitarian state that Dick Cheney and George Bush have envisioned include um, 
you know, the FISA spying on Americans without uh, warrants, uh, monitoring all emails, telephone calls, etc., using the NSA. Uh, these programs have um, expanded and um, proliferated during the uh, Bush II administration. I called the Bush II administration, jokingly, the restoration of uh, what Reagan really wanted to do and what Reagan did to some extent. Uh, let's remember that during the Reagan years, by the way, that critics of Central American foreign policy were uh, investigated a la J. Edgar Hoover. And perhaps it's appropriate at this time to talk a little bit about Martin Luther King and J. Edgar Hoover. It strikes me that on MLK Day, the, uh, the uh, celebration of Martin Luther King's uh, tremendous legacy to American history is uh, sometimes overly focused on the issue of, quote, civil rights. I think that civil rights are obviously at the forefront of what Martin Luther King was talking about uh, throughout his career. But as he uh, got older and wiser and more influential, he began talking more about, you know, the issues regarding poverty, the socioeconomic issues that were affecting all Americans, and, of course, the devastating... Uh, impact of the Vietnam War. Um, he, I th believe, was killed by the American government under circumstances that have not been satisfactorily explained. Uh, we will talk more about that event, uh, perhaps on the 40th anniversary of this, uh, of this killing. But it's always uh, struck me that one of Martin Luther King's, besides the brilliant orations and the I Have a Dream speech and the, these sorts of things, letter, letter from Birmingham Jail, etc., that I think are important uh, documents to uh, re-study and um, appreciate for their um, validity, their spirituality, and uh, their real uh, and palpable um, grounding in the, in the Bible, actually. People often forget that Martin Luther King was a pastor, that he was a minister, and that his teachings regarding nonviolence and, quote, turning the other cheek are right out of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and the exact preachings of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And he, regardless of how you accept Jesus Christ as whether he's your savior or not, we certainly can accept Jesus Christ as a great philosopher and somebody who... Um, the historical Jesus certainly changed our way of thinking. But when Martin Luther King pointed out during the Vietnam War that the and 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 condemning uh, the, uh, the arms race regarding nuclear weaponry and the weapons of mass destruction, uh, the good old WMDs that uh, never were found in Iraq uh, by the uh, Bush administration that concocted the evidence, he said that the United States, Martin Luther King here, and I'm paraphrasing, is the only nation on earth that has military policies that simultaneously p plan for mass murder as well as mass suicide. Um, as his um, rhetoric um, became more um, powerful and sort of transcended the civil rights, uh, once the Voting Rights Act, once the... Uh, um, Civil Rights Act were passed into law, and we've, we've seen how there's been a, a little spat between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama about these events. Martin Luther King broadened his uh, message, and I think that it's always important to remember that Martin Luther King's fundamental uh, impact on the civil rights movement 
was this concept of nonviolence. And there were even strategic um, plans that Martin Luther King articulated to his supporters about how to deal with the protesters, how to, uh, with the cops, how to deal, how the protesters should deal with the cops, um, how that uh, the protesters cannot create violence in their protests, that the protests must be nonviolent. Let the totalitarian state, let the cops get out the water cannons and the dogs. And of course, it's these images of the response to Martin Luther King's nonviolent protests that outraged, well, outraged most Americans. We won't say all Americans. We'll say most Americans, particularly in the North. And, of course, the North had its own uh, racial problems in certain areas uh, for a variety of other reasons. But it's always important, I think, on Martin Luther King Day to... um, Look at the bigger picture of MLK. Focus on the human rights that he was talking about, the broad-minded message of nonviolence. Martin Luther King would be appalled at torture policies developed by the Bush administration that are being used to justify keeping, uh, you know, Guantanamo, Bagram Air Force Base, Abu Ghraib, et cetera, et cetera, all these things going on the so-called war on terror, which is emerging, of course, as a war without end, a war that will continue indefinitely. Uh, We even have the leading presidential Republican candidates suggesting that we may be in Iraq for 100 years. This is absolutely staggering stuff and um, very alarming because uh, the Democrats... They should be winning this presidential race in a landslide. And I believe, uh, since it's, you know, unless Edwards can continue to prove his viability, this will quickly turn into a two-person race. And the Democrats could be stuck with Hillary Clinton, who um, I think is very competent on many issues. She's a superb debater. She presents her policy ideas in a clear, concise manager uh, management style. She's... Um, I think understands the issues inside and out. But she's a little squishy about the war on terror. Even Barack Obama is a little squishy about the war on terror. And I find that troubling. Uh, We still have hedging going on about when the troops will be out of Iraq from these two. And of course, uh, Hillary has negative baggage that in a race with John McCain uh, could allow John McCain to win the presidency. I think if Obama is the nominee, by the way, the Democrats will win in a landslide. But it remains to be seen whether he can actually win the Democratic nomination. Uh, There are many forces aligned against him, and uh, even his own stumbles at times, I think, have uh, damaged his his candidacy in recent recent weeks. So hopefully he will regain his footing a little bit. Not that I'm rooting for him per se, uh, but I think he's uh, certainly preferable in many ways to Hillary Clinton as the candidate going forward for the Democrats. As for the Republicans, uh, I think that this uh, Florida primary in upcoming uh, weeks will eliminate Giuliani and Thompson, and you're genuinely going to see a three-person race with uh, Ron Paul continuing to be a wild card 
but uh, unable to win the nomination. Um, as for um, J. Edgar Hoover, oh, I guess uh, I'm getting the signs. We have non-functioning clocks down here uh, in the studio.